0: Just a little love note to all of our loyal Free Cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to
1: the show. This is an ad-free podcast, and we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff
0: that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five. And it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free
1: cookie we, supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content like... I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content,
0: you know, and I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budick and I'm Kate Fagan. And this is free cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways.
1: And today, okay. On
0: that note, (laughs) I just want to call out Sweet Lou71, who commented on our Instagram. Sweet, sweet Lou. She said, I just was making some project notes and literally said out loud, and today, clearly a junkie for cookies. Oh
1: my goodness. Right? I love, honestly, I'm making a mark on the culture. <laughs> you really are. I'm really, I'm changing people's dialogues. Oh, damn, pulling a Kate Fagan. I see you. With okay. With themselves. <laughs> Every time I do that now, I think about how you feel the onus. The burden, yes, of the
0: albatross around my neck that is Kate Fagan opening, and
1: today... And you're left, like, I get to make some, like, random noise, and you're left with actually articulating what the show is about.
0: Yes. (laughs) Which we should do. Worn, stuck with the boa, the (laughs) boa of options. Well, fortunately, my boa is ready to shine, baby, so I'm going to... Flip it and tell you what's happening today. Do it. We have Natalie Haynes on the show, who is a phenomenal writer and uh, comedian and a... Brit. Brit. Which we love on the show. She stands up for the classics. She's also the March author, one of the March authors for The Inky Phoenix, her most recent book novel that came out, A Thousand Ships, which is her retelling of the women in the aftermath of the Trojan War
1: we have a we have had I think more British guests on this show than one would expect don't you think because i I mean we could, I don't know I guess that's a you can't prove a counter negative I don't know what the listeners of this show expect <laughs> I think having seven to th- eight being that we're an American broadcaster' mean we broadcast from America. We do, and we 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 bring over via the technology of Skype a whole lot of British people, and we do it because no matter what they say, it's it's really fun to listen to them say it. That is true. And wait, you have to speak into the mic. Uh,
0: thank you for <laughs> reminding me how to podcast. I was trying to look at something. We actually, when we spoke to Anthony Horowitz, if you recall, <laughs> Skype was not working. So oh yeah, it's I was- called him. And $250
1: later. Uh, wah, wah. Do, do we understand why in 2021- 20, It's so expensive one, to call overseas. Like, it's not the 90s. Because there's all
0: these little minions that have to run through the airwaves to transmute I, from America to England.
1: I really believe- They need to get paid. Those minions do work. And it's a lot of running with a lot of copper wire that they're holding, which is heavy. But don't you think, I think, that- Making calls internationally actually doesn't cost your network any more infrastructure slash uh, capital, but they just know it's this one little loophole where they can just fuck you right on over, and so they still do. It's like it's unregulated. Like somebody should regulate it at this point. Well,
0: maybe as someone who knows nothing about how phone systems work,
1: I mean, you could well, kind of like we can call on Skype and we can't call on AT and T, like. What it, does it does it cost? What is Skype? Is Skype just like a little Magic Land? Like why does Skype get to do it for free and your your phone bills two hundred and fifty dollars unless it's a form of extortion? Well, it's not quite extortion, but you know oh what I'm saying. Dear,
0: we are going dark side. <laughs> let, let let's bring it back. Bring it back. Let's come back to the Greeks, which are super lighthearted and full of tragedy. Um, so in honor of Natalie Haynes being on our show today, I'm going to do a little quiz with Kate Fagan here, Um, and since the onus normally comes on me, it's now going to go on you, because I'm going to quiz you on idioms and sayings that have their origins in ancient Greece and or Mm -hmm. mythology. Yep. So how are you feeling about this? Are you feeling like we can go for it? We'll start start simple, okay? Okay. All right. The first term that I would like you to define is, and origin, if
1: you don't mind, Achilles' heel. Well, thank you. You're starting very. Achilles' heel is the is the one thing that you will bring you down. Mm. The one the, the one thing in your life that you have a soft spot for, and, and yes, and it comes from Achilles. He was dipped in the paint or the water or the gold, and it was magical. But they had to hold him by something, and they held him by his heel. So as a little baby, he got dipped in the magical solution, uh-huh. and then when they popped him out. They forgot what? to dip him back in like under his arms and pop his legs in. And so he just had the little heel. And then he got killed by the heel. They shot him in the heel, which is also confusing because that's not a death shot. It's just his heel. But that's what happened. Ding, 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 ding. Moving on. Yep. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. You're just starting easy for me. I just, I just, want, I want you to feel good about yourself. Um, because of the Trojan War and the Trojan Horse, which the Greeks presented as a gift to the Trojans, saying like, "We surrender. The war is over. Here's our goodwill." And then they were all hidden inside. And I think also, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Mouth might come from this. The that's Trojan a very horse? good question. We're going to have to look that up. I don't know. Yeah, but you actually should lift a, look a gift horse in the mouth because then you might see that there's a bunch of fucking Trojans <laughs> in there and you shouldn't <laughs> take that gift. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sour grapes. That comes from uh, the goddess Artemis. And she, <laughs> when she goes hunting, she always brings a bunch of grapes with her. And... That's you don't want those because if unless they're in season, it's bad. Hey, no respect. I, I, I like where you went with that. The,
0: the origin of this is actually I think quite funny because it comes from Aesop. Okay, Aesop fables, and it's the fox and the grapes. Okay, And the story is that this fox was like walking along and he sees these super juicy grapes and he's like, damn, I want those juicy grapes. Mm. But he's a fox, right? So it's like doesn't get a lot of ups. So he can't reach the grapes. And instead of just trying to find grapes on a lower branch, he walks away and he's like, I don't want those grapes anyway. They're sour.
1: Wow. Okay. And so, so oh, I see. Because sour grapes, I forgot to define sour grapes. Yes. Sour grapes means when... You, um, Mm -hmm. how do do you, how do you articulate that? Like you have a leftover Sour grapes is when you don't get something that you want. So instead of pretending like you wanted it, you pretend like it's not good enough for you. That's right. That fox, man. So wily. (laughs) Okay. All right. We're going to get a little bit harder.
0: Where does the saying define, please, and explain where the saying between a rock and a hard place comes from?
1: Oh, well, this is, this comes from the Odyssey and it comes when they're on the ship and it's like, the Iliad guy, the dude who does the like Ulysses or Homer. I forget if Homer wrote it or he's on the boat, but either uh, way. It's Odysseus. It? So Odysseus is on the boat, and there's the one monster the one way, and then there's the the whirlpool the other way. And if he goes the one way, there's a bad thing. If he goes the other way, there's a bad thing. So that's where we get that from. And Baby so between good. a rock and a hard place means you're stuck in a place and every direction you choose has a, an issue that you're gonna have to deal with. Ding, ding, Okay, boom, boom, chica, boom.
0: Please explain to me, define, and
1: background of what is the Midas touch? The Midas touch is when the mechanic you're using (laughs) um, has really good skills and everything you touch is, is gold. But anyway, yeah, I know it's not just a mechanic, but I did think before that the Midas touch was a slogan that Midas the company coined but now that I'm thinking about it I think that maybe the myth came first and they named themselves <laughs> after the myth it's true so the Midas touch is from the Michelin man okay. <laughs> no, I honestly can't even come up with it's, a, it's a, it was a lion it was a god lion who Ooh. had a bunch of little lionets and those were baby Cute lions
0: little gold lions yeah and,
1: and but one of them was was didn't have a gold mane and they, that one was like, it was bad because it, it wouldn't be a part of the whole lion group. And so the, 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 the mythical lion with the power touched it and it turned gold. You're
0: actually onto something there because generally saying, if you tell someone they have the Midas touch, that's a compliment, correct? Everything they touch that turns, touches, to gold. turns gold. Like yeah. you have the ability to like create amazing business or whatever yeah. you write, whatever you create. So the origin is about King Midas and Dionysus granted him any wish in the world that he wanted. And Midas asked for the gift to anything he touched, it would turn to gold. Literally turn to gold. Literally turn to gold. Which clearly he didn't think that. No, because if through. he wants
1: to bounce like a bounce, bounce. Well,
0: sadly, his daughter ran in to hug him very quickly after he got this gift, and the little, fallibility l- of humans. Little gold lionette. Yeah, yeah, they know
1: they want the one thing, and this is a, this is a lesson for all of us that we think we want something. But we don't realize the ramifications of getting it. That's true. Okay, this one we actually talk
0: about this on the podcast in our interview. Call a spade a spade.
1: This is a. This comes from. It does this comes from mythology. It comes from the Greeks, the ancient Greeks. Well, call a spade a spade is when you just you tell it like it is. Yes. Um, this comes from a game of spades that was played thousands of years ago. Yeah. Um, and one of the humans was like, they wanted the, I feel like I'm on drunk history right now. They wanted the, the God, the the spade God was not helping them with their hand. I, and they were like, well,
0: it's truly the the origin is not that exciting. I'm just going to cut you off because the origin isn't going to like make anyone happy, but it comes from Plutarch and Plutarch Uh, said that call a fig a fig. Oh, but were people calling figs other things for a while? Evidently. Yeah, they were. I mean, you would probably call a fig a date, which you regularly do.
1: I call a fig a date because they're the
0: same thing. You love dates, but you always ask me after we've had dinner, babe, will you make us some figs? And what she (laughs) means is she wants me to pit dates and stuff
1: them with peanut butter and sea salt. Which I think should be a dessert on like a three Michelin star restaurant. Exactly. They should do some, because dates... Every time I
0: make that for you, you're like, you could sell this for a lot of money (laughs)
1: because we also put them on a plate and you put them like little ships on the outside of it and with like little ships on their way to troy (laughs) yeah but then they get caught in the rock and a hard place and so some of them die along the way okay check this one the wrong end of the the wrong end of the stick i I feel like I, i feel like this is synonymous like when you draw the short stick like, I, I I feel like the meaning that I'm, that I use in like... The, What's the same with drawing straws? Like, oh... I drew the short straw. Yeah. It means I, I got unlucky and I have to do this That's synonymous with, with... I got the wrong, wrong end, end of, of the stick. stick. Yeah. Um, that, well, well, that one is from Norse mythology. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, because it's is when the Vikings would row ah. and they, the, um, the, the Norse Poseidon. Oh, so the yeah. Norse sea god would... Wh- whose name we can't pronounce. Uh, uh, the North Sea god is the um the Jurgenmeister, the <laughs> Jurgen the Jurgennder. It what is it? Say it, say it, say it. You're okay, so that's not bad. <laughs> that wasn't bad. And so if the wrong end of the stick is when the Jurgenmunder would flip their oars. Hmm. And so they couldn't pull the water anymore and they would be stuck at sea.
0: I think we should go with your origin story because the actual origin story this is really gross and I think it's fascinating. So in ancient Greece there were a lot of Um, they didn't have toilet paper they didn't have teepee right so they would take a stick and at the end of the stick they would tie like a cloth or a sponge and you would use that to wipe your behind with right so and it was often a communal toilet so they would like store it in salt water I know gnarly right so obviously you wouldn't want to grab the wrong side of the stick
1: no you wouldn't yeah and then we have one more We've got one more. This okay. one's interesting than the final. Final. Spill the beans. Spill the beans is 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 when you tell people secrets, right? That you're not supposed to tell. Kind of like now we just say cough, cough it up. We say spill the tea, which is what we we did. For- we
0: who's this we? I've never said spill the tea.
1: Well, it, I think that started. That has its origin. In, um, in a meme with um, Kermit the Frog, and he's sipping tea. So that one's not that old. I'm just making yes. this up. By the way, this is like another origin story. Started with a Kermit the Frog meme, and then he was sipping tea, and everyone realized that could be a great meme to explain when you're not supposed to say something because you always do it over tea. Pretty sure Lindsay, did you know this? Spill the, the tea, meaning yeah. like to oh, tell secrets. Did? Has that existed for longer than the last ten years? Don't She's you think only known it in no, 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 the last year. Yeah. Okay, that makes me feel so better. Spill the beans so Spill the Beans is the same thing. Yeah. And that comes from a dinner party that 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 the gods all had a dinner party mm. in, in, in the, in not heaven, but the part, Mount Olympus. <laughs> Mount Olympus. <laughs> Mount Olympus, <laughs> they had a dinner party and it was, they were going to do a, uh, theme I, they were why did they have they beans? were on a 30 day challenge to go vegetarian so they had to spill so they ha- They didn't need the carbs that come with beans and so they tipped over all of the canisters that hold the beans very close Kate Fagan <laughs> where it actually comes from
0: is in ancient Greece they used it as a voting system and you would get your bean, and if you voted yay, you would put a white bean in. If it was nay, you would put a black bean in. So if you spilt the jar of beans, you would be spilling the secrets, and people would tell what they want.
1: Oh. Mm-hmm. Wow. that's Interesting, a good, that's right? That's a good origin story.
0: It is. And then this one I'm just going to tell you because we should probably get to Natalie. Knock on wood, something that I think we all do, but does anyone know why we knock on wood?
1: You I know can tell you, you why you knock on okay, wood. why do
0: you tell me why? No, no, I don't know. I've oh, you don't it know. Up. Okay, yeah. big talk, big talk. So it, that was the belief in, in ancient Greece uh, that there would be nymphs. N- wood nymphs. N- nymphs. Nymphs. Like nymphomaniacs. Nymphs. Have to enunciate that live in trees. And if you would go and touch the wood or knock on wood, that they would somehow imbue you with their blessings. So does nymph
1: lead to the word Nymphomaniac. Uh, absolutely. Nymphs like to bow, chicka bow, bow. So if you, so, so the word nymph is like a small little thing in.
0: Nymphs are not necessarily small. You've got water nymphs, you've got wood nymphs, you've got lots of different kind of nymphs. Where
1: do we get nymphomaniac from, from nymphs? Those are the nymphs that you find when you don't wash your sheets for a long time. That's right. Okay. So you don't want those then. No. Do you think Natalie will be impressed with this opener if she listens to it? I think she's going to think we're stone cold foxes, mm. like the one that grabs the grapes but can't because he's got the sour grapes. The fox mm-hmm. does. I don't really want those grapes okay. anyway. <laughs> we're gonna, let's bring her on. Okay.
0: Natalie Haynes is the author of six books and has written and recorded six series of Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics for the BBC. Natalie is written for The Times, The Independent, The Guardian, and The Observer. She lives in London. All right, Natalie, uh, we were just previously discussing the cold sweat, the sheen that is over my body, because I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, I'm already brainstorming the WhatsApp uh, group that I want to form with you and Madeline Miller. You haven't
1: opted into this, but it's going to be started
0: without your consent. <laughs> okay, yeah,
2: this, it sounds a little bit like some sort of Kidnapping, doesn't it, but in a nice way, so
1: yeah. it's all fine. And digitally, so... Yeah, exactly, which is yeah. really the same as not kidnapping at right. all. It's it's most, most mostly in an emotional punishment that we're going to give to you. Yes. That's fine,
0: yeah. You'll be like the that. Helen of Troy I'm, for me, but I don't, yeah, don't know what that equivalent that. would be. <laughs> so, Natalie, for, for listeners who have not read A Thousand Ships yet, the super fun question to ask, could you give us a little elevator pitch just for new listeners right now?
2: Yes, although, of course, I couldn't get into the elevator because I'm slightly claustrophobic. So I'd have to go from the stairs. I'd just have to run up flights of stairs and shout bits at it each time the doors opened. Uh, So I would get increasingly breathless. How about if I start at the top and the elevator goes down? Is that an option? Good. Oh, my God, yes, please. Good. Um, So I wanted to tell the story of the Trojan War from the perspectives of as many of its women as I possibly could. I was convinced that this, you know, one of literature's greatest wars um, could be told just from the perspectives of its women that we had focused so much on the men's stories rightly in some ways you know the Iliad is a masterpiece and the Odyssey is a masterpiece but um, also a masterpiece the Euripides play the Trojan women or mm-hmm. the Hecuba or Helen um, and I thought what would happen if I tried to tell the story of this huge war from the perspectives of the Trojan women who are besieged inside the city, the Greek women who are waiting for their husbands and brothers and sons to come home, Um, the goddesses who conspire to start the war, um, and the goddesses who help keep it going. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I did. So A Thousand Ships is the story of the Trojan War told from the perspectives of not quite all, but almost all of its women.
1: And now your your CV is... is for for our American listeners here, chock full of all things classics, including what is uh, the upcoming seventh season of Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics, which I read coined you the rock star mythologist. And I just wanted to know kind of like what kind of energy do you have to bring into a room when you're a rock star mythologist is this something that weighs heavily on you?
2: I don't know.
1: <laughs> I don't
2: know how I'm getting away with it. No one knows. No one who actually knows me thinks I'm remotely like a rock star. I'm like a really lame aunt is what I'm like, um, which is good because that's an easy look to work. Um, but yeah, no, I don't know. It's quite It's quite difficult doing this series. And the last series we had to record right at the very start of the UK's first lockdown um and so series six of um stand up for the classics was recorded with me sitting on the floor of my laundry cupboard um people go <laughs> yes right i mean what you need to do natalie is build yourself a studio out of cushions yeah it's a one-bedroom flat how many cushions do you think i own and they're like, oh yeah no just get loads of blankets how many blankets there's just me how many blankets do you think i need i've got more sharp objects and i have blankets does that work no okay um so, yeah, this time we've had a bit more time to prepare for it. So, although I'm still not allowed in the theatre um, and we're still not allowed an audience because the UK is still locked down, um, I am allowed to walk around my room holding a microphone, which is plugged into my phone. So, although I still don't get the thing that I love, which is an audience to respond to, mm-hmm. and um, and the, the the place where I feel most rock starry, um, I do still get to... I mean, it's, it's still not a big flat, do you know what I mean? But at least I can move. Sitting on the floor is... Antithetical to Sorry. having any energy at all. It's so difficult. I find it such a challenge. So, yeah, this series so far we've recorded um, the stand-up bits of of half of it, and so far it's been a lot easier for me than it was last time around.
1: Speaking of rock stars, I I don't know if you've seen the new Billie Eilish documentary on Apple TV, but or or I there's a moment in it where she's recording the album that would win something like nine Grammys, and she puts a blanket over herself because of the same reason probably your producers wanted you to stuff your room full of pillows, is because they wanted better (laughs) audio quality. So you have Billie Eilish with a blanket over her head, probably recording Bad Guy. (laughs) which goes on to sell right. like a hundred. It's just, it goes to show that like whatever vision you have of what everyone, what anyone's life is like, it's actually them in a room with a blanket over their head.
2: Yeah, even though she had, frankly, the most extraordinary manicure at the Grammys, yes. then yes. still that doesn't change the fact that somewhere in her life, she had to sit under a blanket to record a
1: song. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> so Natalie, as we sit here laughing, what came first for you, comedy or classics? Or was one birth from the other? Egg.
2: Um. I suppose in terms of which I started doing first, classics comes first, because I started very young. I started at um, the age of 11, I started studying Latin, and then 14, I started studying ancient Greek. Wow. Um, I know, no, I know. I, how, I know And the how? rest of the I know I had a really <laughs> You really sound so school. cool. I know. I, know. I know. I didn't have lunch money for years, for years, <laughs> I tell you. That's why I kickbox now. Um, yeah No, I was just at a very nerdy school, and I know from um, where you are. Everyone in the UK seems to go to basically Hogwarts. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do Mm -hmm. understand, what you have to understand is they don't go to basically Hogwarts, but I did go to basically (laughs) Hogwarts.
0: Excellent. So I got to
2: go to study Latin and Greek. And yeah, I took my A-levels, which are the exams you take when you're 18, the ones you take just before leaving school. I took Latin, Greek and ancient history. So I could not have been more of a nerd. Um, And then I studied classics at Cambridge. And at Cambridge, I started to do comedy. So... um, Cambridge has a sort of long tradition of uh, having this uh, cl- comedy society called The Footlights, which mm. um, began the careers of people like Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson um, and Stephen Fry. And so um, mm. I joined Footlights as a, as a stand-up comedian. Um, so I was doing classics and comedy together really pretty much the, the second I left school. Um, and then once I graduated, I did stand-up for about 10 or 12 years, um, and then gradually classics just claim me back. When people ask, I always say, I ran away and joined the circus. And then I got tired of the circus and ran away and joined the library. And that's pretty well true.
1: Oh I feel like I don't even know that much about music. And now I'm comparing you to Lil Nas X, who d- said that nobody could blend hip hop and we country. We just watched the Grammys. Kids um, are really no, hot it doesn't on show
2: right at all. I think you're just <laughs> really bluffing it out. You just seem like this is right at the top of your mind anyway. Yes. Don't worry.
1: But I, I have a question about just the classics because... I think most people, myself included, are terrified of the classics and without having even ventured into them really ever in my life. And that's where we couldn't be different. Catherine has ventured into them and and waded around in that water. I had never have. And it's strange because most of the time when I look into the past, I think I'm smarter than what they used to do. You know, it's like whatever inventions happen, like we have more science now. Everything is, we, we seem to think that we are better now. And yet when I look at the classics, I'm like, I'm terrified of it and I think that it was at an elevated place that, like, apparently I can never reach. What is it? Maybe you've thought about this. Like, what do you think it is about the classics that that seems to terrify people?
2: Honestly, I think it's the people who call classics their own. Mm. Um, It makes it seem like it belongs to an elite. Classics Mm. is all of our history it is it belongs to all of us it doesn't just belong to people like me who studied latin from the age of 11 it doesn't just belong to people who you know are professors of greek in you know harvard or oxford or wherever it belongs to all of us this is something which we all have a claim to it is european history is is world history we're a whole continent we don't it it, it can't be withheld in that way but it has been Um, partly because of the way um, it's taught, which to a great extent is uh, certainly in my country, and I think it's true for yours too. It's largely now not taught in in public schools and state schools Mm -hmm. where most students go. So it's withheld to an elite of people not entirely, but for the vast majority of time, it, it's only taught at school age to people who can afford to pay for their education. Mm-hmm. School, I mean, in the UK sense, i.e. under the age of 18, not university. Um, and so there is this sense that, that classics is, is a sort of walled-off garden. And um, that, that feeling that you get of having imposter syndrome when it comes to looking at classics, that's not you. That's the structures that have been put around classics, the walls that have been put up. By people who think that it belongs to this tiny elite who are somehow worthy, inexplicably by virtue of their bank balance, um, to be able to study it in a way that other people aren't. And that is, I am here to uh, ruin people's you know days all over the place, mm-hmm. simply not true. It's mm-hmm. just not true. Classics belongs to all of us. It doesn't matter if you can't read ancient Greek. Most people can't read ancient Greek. It doesn't mean these stories aren't part of your and all of our collective history. You know, if you're reading Shakespeare, which I think very many fewer people feel intimidated by, you're you're reading or watching plays of somebody who was steeped in Latin and Greek, even if he didn't, mm-hmm. I, I know famously, he was supposed to be not very good at either. Um, little Latin and less Greek, they said of him. But do you know what? He He understood it well enough. Do you know what I mean? It's like if mm-hmm. Shakespeare wasn't good enough for you, mm-hmm. then maybe none of us is good enough for you, in which case can we not simply establish that all of us at least should have access to this? And the answer, of course, is yes, of course we must. And stories don't only belong to people who can read them in their original languages. I can't read Spanish, so I can't read Borges, but I love him. I love him. It's, yeah, all right. Of course, I should make the effort and learn. That's what I should have been doing during
0: lockdown instead of making mm. videos about Ovid. But <laughs> I was making videos about Ovid. So who's the real nerd? I tell you. Hashtag Ovid, not COVID. Uh, that's right. <laughs> um, so I, I'm really glad you brought up this concept of it belonging to everyone and also the elite because I was going down the rabbit hole. It started with the NPR interview and then I was on Goodreads, which, you know, it can be a very dangerous zip code. But there were comments about this concept of... You know, the misappropriation of the classics with A Thousand Ships, and how this maybe this concept that women have been given a voice and that this isn't something new, which I dramatically like it's
1: political correctness uh, run amok yes. kind of and vibe.
0: It, <laughs> yes. And I am so curious how you deal, because to me, the people who are saying that, those are the elitists, those are the people who have claimed the classics and have
1: this, you know, there's probably a lot of isms that are going on. Yeah, there, yes. there's this
0: ownership over it. And I adore what you've done and that you've given these women voices that of course there are plays and, and, and epic poems, but the, the specific life that you infuse into them is so powerful. And I don't know, I mean, if you want to say anything to those people, I'm sure those people <laughs> are listening to free cookies, but uh, how, what are your emotions around that?
2: I have literally no emotions spare, I'm afraid. Um,
1: I, I'm That's kind like of, a no-fuck's-giving yeah, response. That is great. Yeah.
2: I mean, you know, they're entitled to feel like that. Of course they are. And if they feel very proprietorial about Quintus Manes's Fall of Troy, then I embrace that. <laughs> I do too. Um, and if they don't like the way that I read it and then the way that I retell it in the Penthesilea chapter, then that's fair to you. are not obliged to like my books. You're not obliged to like anybody's books. So, of course, it's okay to be cross. And, of course, it's okay to express that anger. What's the other option? Going home and kicking the dog? I would very much rather you didn't do that. So, yes, by all means, be angry about me anonymously in a public sphere. I will literally never know. And and I'll never care, I'm afraid.
1: So, <clears throat> the, I you we're doing this interview that i read and you made this point um and i and i'll and i'll read i'll read this is always fun when somebody reads your words back to you but um <laughs> it, it was when you were saying that uh, what happens is that in the 5th century BC when these stories are reinterpreted by the great gra- dramatists is that they realize i think that if you want drama you need to come off the battlefield because the drama of the battlefield is quite limited in scope you fight and somebody's right. going to live and somebody's going to die now Give me a, a quick moment here because I'm, I've am i been working on this piece about women's sports and I feel like always on this podcast I can like tie anything <laughs> to women's sports but people tend to look at women's sports and think, oh, well, people don't watch those because they don't like dunk or run as fast or whatever the physical activity might be when the reality is is that it's because we haven't developed the storylines within those, within that world. And I've really loved reading this quote where you're talking about the classics which I've already you know acknowledged I haven't read and yet there it is in like 2000 years ago the people talking about what we care about in the world realized that like it's not the battlefield the brave heart moment it's like the heart pieces that are happening around it um and so I mostly I wanted to share with our readers that I made this connection that this kind of that they, that this still exists in our world but when when you were realizing, you know, the, the great dramatists and how they were thinking about story, like what about that resonated with you?
2: Well, I've, I think I was, I've always been drawn to Greek tragedy. It's my um, particular enthusiasm, I suppose. I read my undergraduate dissertation on Medea and Heckeby, for example. Uh, I don't have children, don't write in. Um, and uh, it's fine. Um, but no, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> but I, I think there is something fascinating about these. There are Euripides, um, Aeschylus to, a, to an extent, and the Oresteia and the Agamemnon in particular, Euripides over and over again, and then you know, a few hundred years later, Ovid with the Heroides. These are extraordinary male writers who construct female voices. Um, and I think in the case of, of Euripides, let's say, to take, to take one easier example, um, if you want the, the actual drama of a tragedy... Um, so a drama in the way that Aristotle describes it in the Poetics, with you know all the beats that he lists, then it it really doesn't help you to have that take place on the battlefield because it essentially it becomes a a binary question: who lives, who dies? In any mm-hmm. duel, you know it happens over and over again in the Iliad. We see uh, two men join in battle and one of them dies. Um, sometimes both of them die, um, and then you know another set of two people, one of them dies, and so. It's a, it's still a wonderful, extraordinary, compelling and, and revolutionary poem, of course, but um, when you get to Euripides telling the story, you can feel that what he's trying to work out is how do you get emotions out of your audience, which mm-hmm. is maybe a slightly different question, but of course Aristotle notices that what tragedy is there to do is to provide catharsis, we're supposed to invest in these characters and and then you know be brought to a place where we're you know weeping with pity or sympathy at their plight, and that's very much what you're talking about about not having the story behind the the person engaged in conflict. I obviously I agree with you. Sport is basically a sort of formalised version of of battle scenes in mm-hmm. in all in all kinds of ways. I still really like one on one sport for precisely that reason. Um, I prefer it to team sports. Generally, I like the sense of one person being set. I like it to be like a duel. Um, but when we have that narrative, um, we're going to we're going to, we're just going to have a, a stronger emotional response to the outcome. And in tragedy, of course, that's what we're looking for. So when Euripides writes and and puts on the play The Trojan Women, which forms the sort of core of A Thousand Ships um the the closest past tense of a thousand ships um what he's trying to do is show us something quite remarkable which is firstly what it's like to be in a city which has lost a war Mm -hmm. um and you know athens is quite a, a bellicose society at the time that euripides is writing so um She is continually, you know, the men of Athens continually vote for war and the city herself is is therefore constantly embroiled in conflict. And often Athens can be a brutal winner. Uh, Quite aside from how they are as losers after the Syracuse expedition, for for example, they can be brutal winners, as you can read about in uh, Thucydides' Melian uh, dialogue, for example. It's not always to their advantage, as the Melians suggest, but it doesn't stop them being absolutely ruthless. And Euripides is constantly producing these plays which say, basically, what does war do to not just the losers but the winners? Mm -hmm. Who is distorted by this and how? And those questions are absolutely as important now as they ever have been. When *Ships* first came out, somebody asked me about its relevance, and they said, "How, how is classics relevant for a modern audience?" I'm like, Dude, there's nothing I would like more. Than for stories of trafficked women to not be relevant. I'm really, I'll take the hit on book Let's do this. Come on. But unfortunately, you know, we're in a position of astonishing privilege that we can say, oh, yeah, slavery is not really an issue anymore. There are more slaves in the world now than there were in the ancient world. I do see there are more humans in the world now than there were in the ancient world. But it doesn't change the numbers, you know? So we have to be aware that these stories and these themes. And these issues don't just disappear because our lives became more comfortable, quite the reverse.
0: You know, that's to, to summarize that, which is difficult, but it, the character that really stood out for me with the relevance and the crying over the plight was the, the story and how you painted Cassandra in yeah. your novel. And, you know, she's a character that I've always known about. And for those who are like, who's Cassandra, she was cursed by Apollo to utter prophecies that are never believed. I mean, it's, it's, dreadful and then she's seen as the crazy one and the way you told her story she was my big takeaway from the book and then when I read your acknowledgments, you wrote at the end that you miss her the most since you've stopped writing and I would love to to know about your experience writing her because there's something so symbolic about her uttering the truth and no one's listening and i think we all know what it feels like to be screaming the truth at a situation in this modern age and no one's here to to listen to us
2: yeah cassandra is the prophet of our times i think because i mean it's such a uniquely cruel punishment even by the standards of greek myth but um she's given this total clarity but she is treated as a Mm madwoman. So she's not just able to see all this horror unfolding ahead of her, but she's also totally isolated because everybody thinks she's mad. And, you know, it must feel like that being, you know, the person going, hi, sorry, could we maybe stop some flights because there's a pandemic? Or, hi, sorry, could we maybe think about slightly fewer fossil fuels because of climate change? Mm -hmm. Hi, Um, I, I feel like she is absolutely representative of of what it is to be um, alert Mm -hmm. to the world around you now. That sense of going, guys, 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 (laughs) you're going to be amazed (laughs) how dangerous this is. Could you just listen for a second? Um, And being proven right over and over again. Actually, was a really hard bit to write (laughs) because (laughs) you constantly have to find a way of of having her be able to issue these predictions which always come true and not have anyone go, no, wait a second. You did say you didn't. No, hang on. I've just and it, it, it was a real challenge, uh, technically, just to not to not make everyone around her seem incredibly irritating um, because they just didn't, you know, perceive how, how she was speaking and and seeing the world around her. Um, so yeah, she was quite. I mean, obviously, slight spoiler. Um, she doesn't have a happy ending. Very few of the women in a thousand ships have a happy ending, uh, and that's not my doing. That's the Greeks. you can blame them. It is mine I chose. Them. <laughs> um, but there is this um, there is a. I I have a, a great and particular fondness for for Cassandra and this sense of her being um the voice that speaks straight through time, you know, for mm. she, she in theory she she lived just over three thousand years ago. And yet she still feels to me, even though the words have changed to be very, very much a representation of of how it feels to be alive now, and so, yeah, she was very. I mean, at times she was very hard to live with while I was writing the book. She wasn't the hardest person to live with. That was Andromache, um, mm-hmm. but she was she could be very difficult to live with because she's her brain is so full, um, and the words just kind of spill out of her, and everything she can see and everything she can see but not convey. Um, is a lot. It's a lot to carry around while you're writing, for sure.
0: Why was Antomaki um, the most difficult to live with, write with?
2: Because she, I think, experiences the most traumatic shock in the book. Yeah. Um, and uh, although I am not a parent and have uh, have have never wanted to be a parent, um, killing a baby, <laughs> grabbing it from a from a mother's arms and killing a baby was one of the. Worst days at the office, I've had, yeah, I would say. Yeah. Um, I cried the whole time I wrote that scene. I cried the whole time I edited it. And if you listen to the audiobook carefully, you can hear that I'm crying when I read it. Oh, wow. I know, I'm such a wuss. I seem really robust, and mostly I am, but Andromache <laughs> just finishes me every single time. She finishes me every time. And, um, you know, because she is the, the very end of the book as well, um, then we have to see how she comes to terms with that unimaginable loss and yet at the same time we have to imagine it because in the ancient world roughly a third of children didn't make it to adulthood either because of um, childhood diseases or you know they die on in the process of being born obviously it's very common women die in childbirth children die in childbirth Um, but then childhood diseases and infections and things like that take over and so we we know that that countless parents experience this terrible loss and I think it's one of those things that you can just sort of almost overlook when you look at the numbers they're so big we kind of can't process it so we just think to ourselves oh yeah well of course people just had loads of children because a third of them yeah. wouldn't make it to adulthood and then you stop for a minute and go sorry what did I just say yeah. <laughs> hang on a second why would anyone love their child less because they had a statistically smaller chance of making it to adulthood how would anyone ever feel that way? And so once you remember that people are always people, um, which is something Thucydides says, that his history will be a possession for all time, he says, because human nature being what it is, it'll always be kind of relevant. Um, You know, it becomes, it became easier to write, but it was still very painful to write Andromache.
1: No, that's really interesting, because I think that you, you just sort of named something that I've thought actually while watching whatever movie we've already established. I haven't read the classics ever, but don't think that I haven't seen Brad Pitt. Stop her from watching it on TV. TV. um, Got it. (laughs) But um, that I have often thought when portraying a parenthood thousands of years ago, that if their child dies, I don't allow them to have as much humanity I think that they must love less than we do now, which is a Hmm. I don't know if that is baked into the movie. Right. That like maybe the the characters don't dwell in their sadness as as much or I'm not saying the problem could be solely with me. But I think it is an interesting phenomenon that I feel like when we look back in history, we assume that like present day we love more than any people have ever loved. That's an odd thing. That wasn't my question. I mean, it doesn't yeah. feel
2: right, does it? <laughs> right. When, you, when you think about it in those terms, it doesn't feel plausible. Why on earth would we? You know, I mean, it, it, just, doesn't right. sound, it doesn't, just doesn't sound right. And one of the, one of the um, non-classics uh, texts, I suppose I should say, although it's a film, which informed this book was, um, it was a documentary about Rwanda, um, and was seeing these women, which I was paid to go and see, I was reviewing it. Um, I'm not so um, worthy that I would go and see an unbearably <laughs> harrowing documentary as a fun hobby. Um, but it was unbearably harrowing um, and still needed to be watched. You know, these women needed their stories to be seen and heard, for sure. Um, but hearing these women who, who were being presented as a sort of example of how um, restorative justice could work, hearing their words, obviously, in translation, um, well, it didn't seem to me that they were very convinced by restorative justice at all. It seemed to me that they were living with it because there was literally no alternative except death. Um, and as I was watching, I was thinking, this is so interesting that we're, we're kind of categorising this film in our minds as being, you know, it's this kind of narrative. These women have come to terms with the fact that they're now living next door to the people who, you know, murdered there. And I was like, you know, that's not... That's not what it looks like to me. Maybe I'm bringing my own subtext to it, but what it looks like to me is women who just have no choice, having mm-hmm. to um, having to live with what what they've been given. Um, and it was it was a you know an extremely difficult film to watch. But I thought of it over and over again with this book. What do you do when you're the women in this war? And the answer is you you don't have agency. You don't have Mm -hmm. the chance to go. Actually, I don't want to live next door to that person. I'd like them to be put on trial and it's not an option. So it just became a very much more, um, a much more resonant part of the film than I could ever have guessed. Um, when I, when I was watching the movie that this, this film would end up working its way into my book Mm -hmm. years and years later.
1: Natalie, I think I have almost an unanswerable question here, but uh, the more you've, you've been my favorite kind. that's right everybody <laughs> loves a question that they don't have the answer to um but talking so much about war and uh, seeing and reading so many portrayals of it and like the glory we Im- imbue it with like was there is there a classic that you've read where war and glory aren't baked together like was there a culture that realized that war is not glorious, or is it something is that we've always told ourselves be- out of necessity?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure, because I'm certainly not an expert on narrative in, um, in every culture told over, you know, however many millennia we've what? had stories for. So I know, I'm asking too much, I feel. Um, so yeah, no, I don't know if there's the suggestion that... it's. I find it really interesting that um, for the Greeks, for example, um, when Athene offers uh, her bribe to Paris... Um, in the uh, contest for the golden apple. Mm -hmm. One of the things that she can offer him is the chance to win wars. You know, she's good at defensive warfare. That's her specialist area. And so Hera can offer him a kingdom. Aphrodite, of course, can win by offering him Helen. Um, But Athene can offer him this sort of successful defensive warfare. Um, And thats it seems to me that that idea would be very, very hard to sell to somebody now. I don't think we would have the same desire to be good at warfare. Mm. Um, now, I think now we think much more about the death toll of a war and much less about the kind of need to, to win a war because we feel less likely perhaps to be invaded. We feel safer mm-hmm. I'm not sure. It's obviously the case that, for example, for a fifth-century Athenian audience. But I would imagine it, it. must be pretty much true for every ancient society, pretty well everywhere. Had they were much more likely to have the direct experience of war than mm. we are. Um, at least, you know, in the in the affluent and and relatively peaceful west. Um, but you know, somehow, therefore, the idea of being good at war is is a much bigger sell in the ancient world i can't think of a time where you have i mean until i suppose the romans set up uh temples and arches and things to pax romana the roman peace and they praise civil war they very are very keen to get rid of but you know that that roman peace is is predicated on invading other countries in order to you know acquire enough resources to not have to to for example levy an income tax I suppose. So, I mean, I don't suppose they thought about it in those terms, but um, the Roman Empire, just like the Athenian Empire before it, is is basically one of acquiring resources, um, albeit in a slightly dubious way. So people had this direct experience of war, and yet somehow um, they retained this this desire to be successful at it rather than a desire to be removed from it perhaps the idea of being removed from it simply didn't occur to them i'm not sure um but it's certainly the case that i think now if you were to offer somebody in paris's position unlikely though i acknowledge that seems the chance to either have a kingdom have the most beautiful woman in the world for your wife or be good at war it's very very (laughs) hard to imagine that he would take the third option
0: i do wonder what the modern day interpretation of that would be now um, yeah, oh, own, a sure. big, own a big tech company right uh, you know, yeah. um, well, okay so your book as you say the casualties of war are not just about the people who die and that makes me just think about women in myth in general women in the classics in general because so many of them are cursed for uh, refusing to have sex or they are raped and then they're cursed because they were raped and they're often cursed by female goddesses because of that and there's there's so much casualties with women in the classics and you mentioned earlier did you uh, what your specialty on medea i i could you remind me yes. what i i'm so curious about you know medusa and medea and scylla and these women who we now look at you know if you showed pictures of t- them to children they might run and scream or maybe that's not scary enough i don't know but
1: not understanding
0: you know but when you really parse away everything that's happened to them they were these women maybe not medea but women that were wronged and yeah
2: i uh, know absolutely yeah i couldn't agree more i'm glad that you're excited about medusa and medea because that's literally my next two novels in that order <laughs> so this is tremendous All news right. for me long long may this continue um but yeah of course medusa is the first monstered rape victim that's just yes. true um, you know, she is, in some versions of her story, I should say, she has a, a um, consensual encounter with the god Poseidon. Um, in Pindar, I think, they have sex in a damp meadow, which is uh, exactly as euphemistic in Greek as it is in English, just FYI. A damp meadow. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Um, but in Ovid's version, in the Metamorphoses, um, Poseidon violates her. The verb in Latin is "viatasse," injure to defile, to injure to to violate, to do damage to. Um, so she's raped. I mean, you know, Ovid isn't messing around here, although he often is, um, in a temple of Athene. And Athene takes her revenge on Medusa and not on Poseidon. So um, she turns her statue, turns its eyes away from this sexual encounter. Um, and she punishes Medusa by turning her hair to to snakes. That's the this is the transformation that gets the story included in the metamorphoses, a, a set of stories about physical transformations. Um, and so it is, I think, again, it's it's just horribly resonant um, that, uh, much as we might wish that women were always supportive of women who mm. have been raped. Mm -hmm. Women aren't always supportive of women who've been raped. Sometimes they behave as though it is the raped woman's fault. Mm -hmm. And this is a really early version of that story. You know, Athene doesn't punish the perpetrator of the rape, Poseidon. She punishes the survivor of the rape, Medusa. And she punishes her in a sort of uniquely cruel way. Um, We've been told by Ovid that that Medusa is clarissima forma. She's most beautiful in her appearance. And her great beauty is her hair. And it's the hair, of course, that Athene, therefore, turns to snakes. So it is a really specific, as I say, it's a literal monstering. Um, and, uh, and obviously Medusa is, is a great deal, perhaps it isn't obvious, Medusa is a great deal more dangerous to people after her death than she was before. I looked everywhere everywhere. When I was writing the chapter on Medusa for Pandora's Jar, which comes out for you guys next spring, I think, um, but a non-fiction book about women in Greek myth, I looked everywhere for stories of Medusa killing people, turning them to stone, before she's killed, and I couldn't find one.
0: It's very difficult to dig up.
2: Capitan, yeah, he's always what going. Is it about that? He manages to slaughter half the guests at his own wedding. <laughs> by holding up her head it's like dude just buy more cake what is wrong with you um so you know the, these stories are really I th- it is really interesting that we look always at Medusa as a monster and never think of her as a woman yeah um and in some versions you know in the earliest representations of of Gorgons they are Gorgonea they are a Gorgoneon is just a Gorgon head Um, and they are very monstrous. They usually have snakes for hair. They usually have big tusks like a boar or a pig, Um, and they're often thought of as being apotropaic. So they have these very wide mouths with big lolling tongues, Um, and we're meant to think perhaps that they warded off our fears of the dark, our fears of wild animals. Um, Perhaps uh, there is a, a relationship with Humbaba from Gilgamesh, um so they have a lot of different kind of resonances put upon them um but then when the the greeks come along and take the story you know into the 5th century they start making monsters more beautiful so medusa goes from being this um very distorted wild animal kind of creature to being well there's an incredible uh, Pelikea, uh jug in the um metropolitan museum i think in new york um of Medusa at the moment that Perseus is is beheading her and he's holding this curved uh, harpe is the word in Greek this curved sickle-shaped sword um to to behead her and she is this beautiful girl Mm -hmm. asleep and Mm -hmm. it just looks so brutal it's such a it's such an ambivalent reading of the myth and it's a fifth century pot. It's two and a half thousand years old you cannot look at this this vase painting and think this vase painter is really all in favor of Perseus and thinks Medusa is a monster. He hasn't painted her as a monster, he's painted her as a young woman.
0: It's I well, I have so much to say. Actually, I, I wanted to follow up on Gorgon's, but I I, okay. I oh go for it. No, go, go, go. Well, I, I we're just We're fighting over you. We're here fighting Natalie. we are. It, well, That's all right. I'm reading I like think, we'll this... settle
2: this eventually with arm wrestling.
0: <laughs> I'm reading this book. it's called Ariadne, and it's coming out from Flatiron, i believe in in may and poor kate again she's not that's into me into the classics and i'm sitting I'm not, not there into the classics. that's not fair don't make natalie think that <laughs> about me
1: <laughs> i yeah, want this to is be. how i find out Storms <laughs> right, right, right.
0: but i'm sitting there talking about the minotaur which in many ways you know the minotaur is yet another misunderstood um a- Asteron, this was is us another- last night in
1: bed Catherine being like <laughs> God, the Minotaur is just so terrifying. I mean, God, just imagine (laughs) if you were one of those kids. And I was like, well, has anyone written a book from the point of view of the kid in the labyrinth? Which I'm kind of like, no, they're dead. Yeah, Um, okay. But I don't really know where I'm going there except for
0: yet another uh, creature that is completely misunderstood. And poor Kate, I talk about things like Minotaur in bed.
1: (laughs) Is that your third book in line? Is that the one after? It's not. And you know
2: why? Because, um... Because Borges already did it in a very very short story. It's literally mm. two or three pages long, called "The House of Asterion," um, and it's Theseus, and he, um, and the, or at least it's the story of Theseus, but it's told from the perspective of the Minotaur, and the Minotaur <gasps> is 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 basically stuck alone in the labyrinth, and incredibly it's lonely. So it is sad. devastating, mm. and so the whole this very very short short story is the Minotaur. Um, but it takes you kind of a minute to work that out because most people don't know that Asterion is the Minotaur's name. I think mm-hmm. most people don't don't even realize the Minotaur has a name. Mm-mm, nameless.
0: Um, Bringer but, of light. Uh, it's so sad.
2: Right. And so he's waiting and waiting. And in, in the end, of course, he's desperate to be killed because he's so lonely. And then finally, it's just, I mean, it's like so much of all it it's just a masterpiece, a miniature masterpiece. Um the story ends. It flips to Theseus's perspective, and he says, "Would you believe it, Ariadne? You know he didn't fight at all." And it's oh, it's ugh. just. And you go, "I have ugh. nothing to add to that." That's
1: perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: he is the yeah. worst.
1: <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yes, he is. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've read, i i read. I believe I read somewhere that you had um, posited that like the classics offer. More nuance about women than later iterations of society. Um, I, I yes, want to make it's sure. Often true. Yeah, and it's often true. Not it, always,
2: obviously. Yeah. They have plenty of their own patriarchy and plenty of their own misogyny. Do we but point, what we yeah, do we point to
1: Christianity there as like
2: the. I mean, a little bit we have to with someone like Pandora. Um, Because for the ancients, Pandora is, um, she is the Ur-woman. There are no women before Pandora, right? Men are descended from a clay-born man named Erichthonius. Women are descended from this clay-sculpted woman, Pandora. So we are literally different races, Mm. in terms of the greek myth origin stories of us Um, but if you look at uh the versions of her that we can see in ancient authors for example in hesiod who tells her story twice once in the theogony and once a bit in a bit more detail in the works and days um what we get is this um, idea of pandora as an agent of change so pandora is created on the orders of zeus because zeus wants to shake things up um, for mortals, because mortals have been um, given fire by the titan Prometheus, who's stolen fire from the gods. And Zeus feels very wronged, personally wronged by this. So he insists that they create a bad thing, a kakon, to, to um, give us, in, in exchange, antagathoio, in exchange for the good thing, fire. Um, and so there's this notion of Pandora being both good and bad. Um, uh, Hesiod calls her kalon kakon a good bad thing but that's almost always translated as beautiful evil Hmm. and that's that's in the translation the two words are absolutely parallel in in greek they mean beautiful ugly good bad fine shoddy and yet almost always the good quality is rendered visual and the bad quality is rendered moral and that isn't in hesiod that's in translators of hesiod that's much much later um when people are translating him into English, and that is happening. The the kind of overlaying of the Christian story of Eve mm. um, on the Pandora narrative, that Eve is responsible for the fall of man because of eating the apple in the Garden of Eden, etc. Fine, that's in the Old Testament, I'm not going to argue it. I'm going to argue that, you know, God made the snake, and so it's a bit harsh to blame the whole thing on Eve, but okay, you can have that one. But the idea of Pandora being the only person responsible for bringing all the evils into the world... That's really not an uncontested point in Greek writing. Only in one version of his, two versions, does Hesiod even mention her having a jar with evil things in it. Um, In other versions of the story that that are uh, almost as old, for example, uh, the elegies of Theognis, the, the jar that she carries has nice things in it. Um, In other versions of the story, there's a version in Aesop's Fables, for example, um, the jar is opened by a man, presumably her husband Epimetheus, um, who's described as Lyknos, I think, uh, uh, greedy or curious. Um, And yet, for us, Pandora is always the one responsible
0: for terrible
2: things out into the world Mm -hmm. every single time.
0: You can tell me to wait and read your book when it comes out in America. And is it not till 2022 in America? Pandora, I'm sorry. Yeah, Pandora's, Pandora's ships
2: has to come out in your Ships has to come out in paperback in the fall. And then you get Pandora in spring 22. Yeah, but Pandora came out in fall 20 here. So yeah, I've been promoting two books across four time zones for the last three months. I, honestly, you're lucky I know which book I'm talking about today.
1: It's, it's, a, it's a miracle. Wait. But if we flew to London, we could get your book.
2: Mm. It's okay. Yeah, we, know, we know king. people. Yeah, we well, yeah, got friends out. in low places. That's, <laughs> That's true.
0: true. Low places. This is such a technical question, but these are the things that keep me up at night. So it's okay. Pandora's jar, which I've heard you yes. say that the actual translation, it's been mistranslated. It's not box. Yes. It's jar. It's
2: translated by Erasmus, the Dutch polymath and scholar. Fuck him. The, yeah, I mean a
1: bit. <laughs> seriously Because he Somebody takes the Greek him. word
2: pathos which means jar, and he translates it to the Latin word "pixis," which means box. And within 30 years or so, every visual representation of Pandora that either we can see, because it's on a vase which has survived to us, or that we get described, for example, by Pausanias, when he goes to see a temple where it's sculpted or something, um, every version of her shows her with, with... No kind of receptacle at all, not a jar, not a box, nothing. She is always shown in the act of being created, always. She's always shown being sculpted from the ground by Hephaestus and other gods or goddesses helping out. Every single version of her. She is The most important thing about her to the Greeks is that she is our ancestress, um, that we're all descended from her. And then Erasmus comes along and he takes the jar story from Hesiod's Works and Days Um, and he translates Pythos to Pyxis, within 20 or 30 years, you start seeing artworks which have previously shown Pandora with a jar, or if they're ancient artworks without anything at all, you start seeing her with a box. And then the box starts to get like big leather straps around it. So it looks like she's really making the effort to get all the evils out in the world out into it. And all the other versions of the story, it's so easy to knock over a jar. Greek jars are tiny at the base; they're fat at the top. They are really top-heavy. You know, you only have to see them in a museum to see they're covered in cracks. That's not an accident. It's because they're made of terracotta, and you can knock them over easily. Don't put the world's evils in there. That's an (laughs) idea. Once Erasmus is finished, then there she is with her box and her keys. She's like a, you know, she's like the janitor and something opening. It's like, well, wait, how did this happen? And Erasmus has form. I have to tell you, it's not only pandora that he uh, he mistranslates but he's responsible for the fact that in english i guess i don't know if this is a phrase in america but um here somebody might say or at least somebody of my parents generation might say if somebody who speaks very bluntly that they like to call a spade a spade oh we, we have that we have that right it comes from erasmus except that um. he's mistranslated it again because the word <laughs> that guy. Greek, yes the word scape in greek means a hollowed out thing like a canoe so what you should say is- A canoe is a honest, canoe? Well, a canoe a canoe,
0: yes. <laughs> I'm going to start
1: saying that now. I'm going to start saying
0: yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification, because I'm like, but you have to open something to let it, bad things come out of it, and now it's a jar, so you do pour it, but no, it gets knocked over. makes so much more sense.
2: Yeah, um, I
0: mean, you know. Well, speaking of jars, this is hands down the most complicated question of our entire interview that we are going to throw okay. in your direction, so please don't mistranslate it. What is your favorite cookie?
1: If you were reaching your hand into a cookie jar. Is would that you, American Would you pull out jar? an evil cookie? So, so this
2: is exciting times because generally I would go, because obviously we've got a slight language divide here because I would say biscuit Biscuits. where you would say
0: cookie. Yes. But if
2: I said biscuit, you would think I meant like a scone type thing. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. we have, and so this is already complicated. But in terms of the American cookie available to me, I go snickerdoodle all day long.
1: Oh. Is that a scene as an American cookie, the snickerdoodle? It is, yeah. Okay what other cookies do or do we think are like american or are all cookies american and obviously cuz of the term like a chocolate chip cookie american
2: oh yeah cuz we used to have when i was a child we used to get them from a brand called maryland cookies i've always assumed that maryland was basically the 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 the, the pilgrimage i would make to, <laughs> to the home of cookies would be to maryland Is the, that not the true? state
1: the state maryland uh, wow Maryland. Wait, do they not have do they not no nobody thinks Maryland <laughs> is a place No, no. <laughs> oh, I love that though. That's, That's so so funny. I can't oh, stand no. it. I would love to think of Maryland as it's the like, land of the, co- the as, chocolate chip cookies.
0: Yeah, where it's people
2: are the land of cookies? Oh, sh- I can't
0: believe sh- sh- don't it. Don't listen to Kate. Stop, <laughs> Natalie, just you didn't hear it. misland mistranslated, mistranslated. So yeah, okay.
1: Snickerdoodle is what we're going with.
2: Snickerdoodles. I I like cinnamon. I've always liked it. I like the, you know, I like the fact that somebody once... Oh, what's it, it happens in Veronica Mars. Remember Veronica Mars? Mm-hmm. Um, where um, Veronica makes her friend Wallace a little pep rally um, present of snickerdoodles in a box. Oh. And I was quite stressed and sad at the time I was watching that. And my friend Michelle made me a little pep box for snickerdoodles. And I still have the box in the cupboard now. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, I think I associate snickerdoodles with love and pep. Mm. And they're they're always going to be a good cookie for me.
1: And I don't know if this is true, but I think that the cookies, biscuits that Ted Lasso makes in Ted Lasso, which I hope you've seen, I feel that they are snickerdoodle flavored as well. Do you know this American show, Ted Lasso? I do not know this show. Oh Should goodness. I watch it? Oh, yes, yes. It's, he's, a, he's an American football coach. Who is hired to coach an English Premier League soccer team? And it's it's so That's it's hilarious. Jason Sudeikis. And oh, it's, okay.
2: Because Friday Night Lights made me cry a lot. This I is, mean, all the time. This will make you cry, this but make in, you like, cry in a
1: earnest way. a joyful, okay. I'm res- humanity is restored kind yes. of way, and make you laugh That's at the same what time. I need. Yes, yeah. please, Ted Lasso.
2: Okay, good. Um, sounds but, like, I'm What a perfect place to end. We
0: started this. with the
1: classics <laughs> and we ended with Ted Lasso. Ted I feel Lasso, like is, we've achieved a lot. Is a new classic, I think, is what we can say why not natalie thank you so much for being so generous with your time and all of your wealth of knowledge i know
0: your brain is a lovely thing so thank you for letting us uh, to to pick in there yeah it was my pleasure thanks for having me thank you bye bye
1: bye thanks For this week's episode of Free Cookies, you can find all things Free Cookies at Free Cookies Podcast on Instagram. You can email us at Free Cookies Podcast at gmail.com. You can follow the Inky Phoenix at the Inky Phoenix. We are produced by Lindsay Collins of FNB Radio. The best. The best. I'm trying to weave sayings into this. like.
0: And then... And then, if you don't have sour grapes, maybe you want to rate and review our show, which you can do on Apple Podcasts.
1: call a spade a spade. This show's great. Fucking or, say it. Or
0: call a date a fig <laughs> and make sure you put it on a fancy menu somewhere. But we want to give a big shout out to May 4869 and also to Yay for giving us five-star reviews. And to specify, that is precisely six A's and two Y's. And
1: Yay. I really, we have to figure out if we should take this podcast and, like, stream it. Because your face when you do things is really where it's at. <laughs> when you say these He's names. trying to remind
0: you Mount Olympus? I'm like, look, look at Mount Yeah, but you did it. You did it. I did. I, I got to Mount Olympus. You got it. You got it. And I was going to do a hurdle next for the Olympics. Wow, that's where you were going to go? And then I was going to throw a pointed stick.
1: Javelin. Yeah, a javelin. (laughs) Which I think Achilles was really good at doing. He threw... He was really good at getting killed by... No, yeah, because what happened was is... um You're thinking of Brad Pitt. Yeah, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah. But... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What I was thinking of was that Eric Bana, Mm. who played... Hector Hector, Hector <laughs> oh, killed Brad Pitt by throwing a javelin no, 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 into no. his into his oh, heel. No, no, no Orlando
0: Bloom yes.
1: oh. who plays Paris. Yes Paris, <laughs> threw a javelin and hit Brad Pitt in the heel. It was actually a bow and arrow, but still. I don't know. In the movie, I think they made it a javelin. Maybe. But um that's all I have to say about that. But it's the end of the show, and this is the time where things just get wild and crazy. Out. It's It's the time of—it's it's, it's similar to, like, if you've ever played pickup basketball. In the last game, everything deteriorates. People stop running back on defense. They're tired. Everything breaks down, and that's when you know it's the last game. This is when we lift our third glass of wine to Dionysus
0: to thank him for his Midas touch.